from Stanford University and KZSU. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. I can't teach anybody how to sing unless they know why it's important. Otherwise, they're just banging on a drum. And Barney would never have that, and I wouldn't have that either. My younger sister, Chloe, practices her cello in the living room of our home. She sits on a small chair in front of the elegant music stand my father built for her. She carefully glides her bow back and forth on the strings of her instrument, while her left hand darts up and down the fingerboard. Though I don't often watch my sister practice, you can hear her playing from just about everywhere in the house. Even sitting in my bedroom with the door closed, trying to do my homework, I could still hear the melody sneaking in under the door. After a few years, I got to know just about all her songs by heart. The sounds of her practicing got to be a part of my everyday routine, so much so, in fact, that I stopped noticing them. Then I went away to college. When I returned home the summer after my freshman year, everything looked exactly the same. I was one of those lucky college students whose parents hadn't totally deconstructed their room, so my bed, my room, my cats, my family, and my house were all just as I had left them. But one afternoon early in the summer, I was sitting at the dining room table with my mom and sister when my sister announced she was going to practice cello and got up to head towards the living room. When she started to play for the first time, I didn't recognize what she was playing. The music was beautiful, of course, but totally different from what she'd played before. For the first time, I felt out of place. Those few lines of new melody shocked me into realizing that I had taken my sister's music for granted. Not recognizing the music my sister was playing meant that I had missed something, that my home had moved on without me. Just as much as the taste of my mom's cooking, or the purr of my cat's, or how my bedroom was arranged just so. My sister's music had made me feel at home. Now that it was different, I wasn't sure I belonged anymore. From KZSU in Stanford, California, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm Hannah Krakauer. Today's show, Epiphany. Now when I say the word epiphany, you probably hear epiphany with an A. This is a word we often use to express a sudden, big realization or insight. It usually designates a specifically visual experience, a sudden moment of manifestation of something coming into view. In the most famous epiphany in all of literature, James Joyce's Stephen Dedalus comes upon a beautiful girl waiting in a river, and it is from that vision that he realizes the truth of his life. Since Joyce, epiphany has become a staple of fiction, memoir, and film. And in a culture so dominated by visual experience, this seems only natural. But these same moments of truth, these life-changing revelations, can also come from sound. We can also call these moments epiphany, but this is epiphony with an O. Today, we bring you three such stories about the transformative power of sound. In our first story, Silence Speaks Volumes, Angela Castellanos explores how our brains are able to process all different kinds of sound and explains why the moments of silence in between the sounds may be the most insightful moments of all. Then, in Healing Sounds, Trent Walker recounts his story of studying traditional Cambodian Buddhist chant and considers the possibility that music like this can so alter our state of consciousness that it could actually help us heal. And finally, people find the drum who need to find the drum. A story of how one teacher at Stanford created a new community among his students through Native American powwow music. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Stay with us. Our first story, Silence Speaks Volumes. Angela Castellanos takes a look at how our brains are able to process the inordinate numbers of sounds we hear every day. And it turns out that if we can manage to find a few moments of silence between all the noise, we may be much better off for it. Every day we are bombarded with an incredible range of noises. Our ears pick up all kinds of frequencies and somehow our brains are able to sort through the signals and make sense of the busy world. 
I mean, just think about it. When you're sitting in a loud restaurant, you can pick out your favorite song in the background. And when you're standing in line at the grocery store, you can tune in to the cashier's conversation with the customer in front of you, whether you want to or not. In fact, we are so good at sorting through all these noises that in the middle of the crowded street, I can call your name and you, above all the hustle and bustle, you will hear my voice. So how do we do this? How does our brain sort through all the noise and pick out the important stuff? Neuroscientists have been trying to figure this out for years, and until recently, acoustic experiments in the laboratory, they haven't really matched the complexity of the sounds we hear every day. Why is it important how my brain responds to this? When I spend my days listening to this. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. To the neurons in your ear that first catch these sound waves, your favorite song really is just a bunch of frequencies. Listen carefully, this is the actual sound of a neuron firing its message to other neurons. It sounds completely random and meaningless. And somehow, this seemingly random electrical action turns into this. Our brain can take these frequencies and the periodic firing of neurons and turn them into meaningful chunks of information. Suddenly these frequencies become the beginnings, the ends, and the other moments that define your favorite song. No one really quite knows how the brain does this organizational process. Neuroscientists call it event segmentation, and they are particularly interested in how the brain deals with these segments over time. For the last uh, five years or so, we've been um, grappling with the issue of what uh, temporal structure and music means. That's Dr. Vinod Menon, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences in the Neuroscience Institute at Stanford University. Uh, in terms of uh, how the brain actually organizes uh, information over time and processes structure over time. Um, so. And we've been thinking about designing studies that address uh, both these issues, one at the level of the music theoretic um, and perceptual, and the other in terms of how the brain actually um, processes uh, complex information that evolves over time. And music just happened to be uh, the right kind of uh, domain to address some of the questions. At Stanford, Dr. Manon was researching auditory processing with Daniel Levitin. Daniel has since moved to McGill University, but the two have been collaborating on these type of projects ever since. And just across campus, associate professor of music and composer Jonathan Berger, well, he was toying with his own ideas of musical experiments. My, my original purpose when I first started this was to understand musical expectations, building expectations, processing expectations, violating expectations. Years ago, I got involved with um, building little computer models that sort of were little toys that simulated how this how this works and then when I got to Stanford and um, started interacting with Vinod we realized that um, that they're attacking this at a, at a neuroscience level and so that the, the uh, two of us began to sort of interact and see where we can meet. So the neuroscientists joined forces with the composer Berger and Chris Chafe, who is the director of the Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics at Stanford. They all put together an experiment to look at the brain during one of these segmentation events. Now, these days, looking at the brain doesn't involve surgery or a saw or even a bunch of wires taped to your head. All you have to do is lay inside a large magnet and listen to the music. In this experiment, the researchers were focusing on the brain activity at a movement transition. The movement transition is a boundary between one segment of music in a symphony and the start of another. Jonathan Berger explains exactly what this means. So what happens at the end of any um, well-constructed movement of, of music is that there's um, what's called a, ca a cadence, which means that um, there's an element of unresolved tension that finally become, comes to a resolution. It typically slows down a little bit. 
and sometimes it slows down an awful lot. There's there's an elongated ending at the ver- at the very final final moment. Um, so there's, there are cues that say, oh, the end is coming. The researchers decide to look at the brain's activity in a 10-second window surrounding this movement transition. So what symphony was chosen for the study? Well, the researchers didn't exactly want the subjects to play the name that tune. For every one famous composer 200 years ago, there are hundreds that are unknown. So we chose one who is, whose music is um, reasonably boring. The lucky guy? 18th century late Baroque composer William Boyce. Never heard of him? Me neither. Though you may have heard of one of his contemporaries. Johann Sebastian Bach. So while Boyce was no Bach, his music still had exactly what the research called for. Excellent music, beautifully done, but boring in the sense that, unlike the great composers that were contemporary, he doesn't build in these fantastic surprises, and, and so there's this sort of listening level of, I know where I am, I know where I'm going, and, which is, you know, a, a large portion of, of, of what we listen to music. So if you don't know a movement transition from a cadence, from a minor chord, from a C-sharp, don't worry about it. Part of the study was designed to look at the brains of untrained musicians, like myself. So, of course, I wonder how am I supposed to respond to this movement transition if I don't even know what it's called or when it's coming. One of the most interesting parts of the research is that I do know when the movement transition is coming, or at least my brain does. Listen to this 10-second bit of a William Boyce symphony. And now, talk, talk you through what's happening, what we're seeing in, the, in the, uh, this animation of, um, of fMRI. So when, Nothing has slowed down yet, but you notice that the sequence now, that the network of we're getting to an end has kicked in where I said it did, so before it actually slowed down. And once more, and as for you radio audiences who can't see this, (laughs) so it's now the network is in play, and now another network has started where three seconds before the end, that's writing to memory and building expectations. Now, Now you can see two seconds into it, the f- first network dies away, and then the second network dies away. And that's a consistent pattern in, um, in segmentation boundaries. So the music starts off with the end of the movement, and an area on the right side of the brain lights up in red. This active network, the ventral frontotemporal network, well, it sets up our brain to focus on an important event. Here, the important event we're focusing on is the music and the musical shift. Later in the transition, in just these 10 seconds, the first network that was helping us focus, well, it sets up the dorsal frontoparietal network. This part of the brain keeps us at attention, and it may also help encode that event into memory so we can then process it more intensely later. All of this activity is happening on the right side of the brain, which struck neuroscientist Vinod Manan as kind of odd. These responses seem to overlap more with uh, what had been previously observed in um, visuospatial information processing. An object in the visual world is defined by its boundaries. Uh, And so in the auditory world as well, you could think about objects being defined by the boundaries. So in order to say this is a a unit element uh, of an auditory object, this this is where the boundary is. So when we listen to music and organize the sounds into these segments, we're probably using parts of the brain we may use to segment events in general. But one prediction may be that there are common mechanisms underlying detection of these salient boundaries, these very large-scale boundaries um, that set up expectation of what's to come and bring some level of closure. Except in this experiment, we aren't looking at space or anything physical at all. We're looking, or rather we're listening, to changes over time. There is one moment in a movement transition that surprised the neuroscientists. In experiments like these, scientists are usually looking for brain activity while sound is playing or while lights are flashing. They want to know what the brain is doing in response to a specific cue or task. Oddly enough though, in this musical experiment, the most activity seen in the brain was actually when there was no sound at all. Music processing happens primarily, perhaps, but certainly to a great degree, in the silences between. So we use those silences, and, and you know, in, in teaching composition, 
every composition teacher says their silences are more important than sound, right? You use them carefully. And, but it turns out that from a neuroscience perspective, that those silences are critically important in, in processing because that gives the brain the time to say, okay, now let's regroup and figure out what, what we're writing to memory. Jonathan Berger looks at the brain's response to boundaries in music as our chance to play with time. Marvin Minsky, a pioneer in artificial intelligence, well, he says that kids play with blocks to learn about space. So in the same way, we listen to music to learn about time. Within music, the brain can hone its valuable ability to listen and to anticipate what's coming next. Our survival is based on anticipation. Um, you know, we need to we need to understand when, anticipate when something is about to happen, react to it in time for that to work. And so um, another, you know, an extension of that is that music gives us this playground to play with expectations and, and, and anticipate when things are happening. And then a great composer can build up this very, very strong sense that something is going to happen and then do something else or take you in another direction or or a performer can can play something that's about to get to where you think you're going to go and then stretches out the next thing you know, penultimate chord just for a little bit um, so on all levels of of making music the play of time and expectations is a critical aspect so where else would these segments separated by time or by space be in our everyday lives where do these silences exist? You know, very normal uh, pieces of music, speech, and so on have um, have pauses in them, mm -hmm. and nobody had really thought of these pauses as being interesting cognitive events. And the focus maybe was, you know, the faster things go and the louder things are, the more interesting they are cognitively. Mm -hmm. And in some sense, our study says perhaps not. Let's face it, in our world, we suffer from hypersonic stimulation. We go to work or school every day with music in our headphones while we sit on loud buses. We live in a world where our ears receive constant input. In our world, the brain needs a breather in order to take it all in. It appears that's a significant moment for the brain to sort of recoup and figure out what's going to happen and what's happening next. You know, it's almost as if we need that, that breather to say, okay, this is where we are. This experiment shows us that the brain is taking full advantage of this moment of silence to process the music. In the silence, this flurry of brain activity happens automatically, somehow allowing us to feel the end of one movement and the beginning of another. Jonathan Berger says that in music composition classes, students are often told that silence is more important than the sound. The best composers and songwriters, they use these silences to take our brains on this journey, weaving us through the beginning, moments of uncertainty, and finally we arrive at the end, in real time, just with sound. In the same way composers highlight the importance of a musical moment with silence, we can use silence in our own lives to reflect, to emphasize, and to appreciate our own moments. When we wander around, Lost in a world of sounds, the moments of silence give us the most clarity. When we stop, we can orient ourselves, our goals, our expectations, all in just a second of silence. Our brains find order in these small moments of emptiness. These small moments, they help us sift through the massive amounts of information we receive every day. So it's interesting, actually, I pay more attention during the silent period, not just in, uh, in music, but also in speech when I'm listening to something. Uh, and I can see, uh, I get, you know, it's palpable that there's, there's something interesting going on there. And it's obviously, you know, things that we've, we've lived with, but now we are more attentive to and conscious that there's something interesting going on. And as a scientist, you're curious what exactly is going on. So instead of bombarding your brain with this, or this, it might be best for your attention, for your memory, for you, to stop and think about how you might respond to this.
Angela Castellanos is a senior at Stanford. After a long and stressful day, listening to a calm song can do wonders to make us feel more relaxed. But there's a traditional form of Cambodian chanting, called smote, that claims to do much more than just relax us. In our second story, Healing Sounds, Trent Walker recounts his own experiences in Cambodia and how his skepticism towards the music's healing power was challenged. Another sultry, warm night. Mosquitoes dance around my bare feet. I light a candle and press the base firmly into the floor of my teacher's house. It gives off just enough light to read the elegant writing on the manuscript before us. That night, he teaches me how to chant the text. My teacher, Brum Ut, lived with his family in a small village in rural Cambodia when I met him in 2005. Lowering his voice to a whisper, he says, This text is very important. When I chant this text to the sick, often they are healed and live many more years. I left for Cambodia after high school to pursue study in music, meditation, and just a more intimate sense of being alive, but not to study healing. Ignoring my disbelief, he says gently, it's true, it's really true. Although I would spend nearly a year studying sacred smoke chanting with Brumut, I didn't believe that it could actually heal people. It wasn't, in fact, until I began talking with researchers and scholars back in America that I heard how scientists were building connections between music and healing. One day, I attended a lecture given by Gabe Thoreau, visiting scholar at Stanford's Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics. In his lecture, he spoke about his research in music and the brain, beginning with an experience he had at a party in college. Uh, I, was, I was in a blues band, so I was on the drums in the back of this blues band. Um, and it was, it was late at night, uh, everybody's dancing around and sweating, and it's dark in the room, and, I mean, it's, and it's packed, like full, full house. Uh, we've been playing for a couple hours, so I'm really, really warmed up. And um, my next memories of this experience were actually watching myself from ab above my own head. So I was like about five feet above my head and about five feet behind my head. You know, like perched up. Like I was on a ladder or something. Um, but I was sitting there playing the drums the entire time. I, it, it was, the, the perspective was like as if I was through the back wall of the room. As soon as I realized I was watching myself and that I was like floating up in the, you know, like near the ceiling, um, I immediately uh, came back to a first person perspective. So I was like back in my body again, drumming and sweating and everybody's watching me and it was incredibly intense and I'm just, and I, you know, I had no idea what had happened um, and it sort of freaked me out to tell you the truth. Gabe explained that this experience sparked him to pursue research in music and neuroscience. I've actually heard since then of a lot of other musicians describe this, like when they really, really get in the zone, when they're really, really in an intense state of flow and, um, and concentration and, um, and all of the factors surrounding them are sort of putting them there, um, a lot of people will be able to watch themselves. 
In his research, Gabe explains the scientific basis of how music can affect extraordinary states of consciousness, including deep concentration and out-of-body experiences. As a jazz musician myself, I could identify more with Gabe's story than with my Cambodian teacher's claims about small chanting. But I also sensed a possible connection between the two. After that class, and for the next several weeks, I continued to talk with Gabe. I asked him more about his research and a term he brought up in his talk, entrainment. This idea of entrainment, which is what I've been sort of really into. Entrainment, hmm, it sounded more like a psychic trick than a scientific principle, but entrainment is actually the idea that two oscillatory systems will affect each other if they're in close proximity. So if one thing is pulsing uh, at one tempo and another thing is pulsing at a different tempo and they're close to each other, like actually physically in close proximity to each other, the stronger one will win out over the weaker one. I learned that this property was discovered by the Dutch scientist Christian Huygens in 1665, who observed that when he left a collection of grandfather clocks in a room together, in just a few days, they would all be in sync. Entrainment, however, isn't just about clocks. According to scientists, it is a property of many kinds of natural phenomena. It also occurs within the brain itself. The study of electromagnetic activity in the brain, or brain waves, reveals how the different parts of the brain communicate with each other through entrainment, or by matching up their frequencies. Gabe Thoreau. So that, this sort of leads to an idea of, uh, of uh, sort of what sickness or health could be defined as in an electromagnetic context within your brain. Um, because if one area of your brain starts pulsing, you know, even slightly slower than normal, um, it will affect all of the surrounding areas, uh, sort of like by induction, um, and uh, th that could create a lot of sickness. Gabe and other researchers at the Stanford Sleep Lab used electroencephalogram, or EEG technology, to monitor brain waves. By lightly attaching wires to the scalps of their lab subjects, Gabe and his colleagues were able to get a closer look on what's actually happening to the brain when we're listening to music. Basically what I found was that uh, you can describe a lot of the sort of states that people enter when they're praying or meditating, um, you know, reciting mantras, chanting, um, drumming. Uh, you can describe a lot of the states um, based on um, what their EEG is doing. Basically there's a different, um, there's different brain states, uh, like electromagnetic states associated with um, different states of arousal. And then it turns out different states like meditation have uh, sort of has its own sort of EEG signature. And if you're in more of like a over-aroused sort of trance state, there's something completely different going on in your EEG. And so for the first time in the history of the world, we're able to get an outsider's perspective on an internal state. The work of Gabe and other researchers shows how EEG tests can reveal different brainwave frequencies corresponding to specific states of consciousness. Their work also shows that those very states of consciousness can be achieved through sonic entrainment. So it's like if we are, imagine that our brain is a bowl of water. We're going to get different waves and ripples, whether we hold it still, slosh it around, or even play a loud sound right next to it. I also learned about the auditory driving hypothesis from Gabe. It states that exposure to external sound frequencies can entrain the brain to pulse at those very frequencies, thereby affecting different states of consciousness. There's this auditory driving hypothesis, which is basically saying that there is a one-to-one -one ratio, a one-to-one -one ratio between the tempos in your environment and your brainwave state. If you start drumming at seven hertz, eventually your brain waves are going to start to reflect 7 hertz. Um, in the book we're writing now, there's several studies that have uh, verified that. After my initial talk with Gabe, I learned that the science of sonic entrainment and the auditory driving hypothesis had real applications. Gabe's out-of-body experience on the drums vividly shows how music can induce extraordinary states of consciousness. And as I began to find out, musicians, shamans, and healers the world over have long been exploiting the sonic entrainment capabilities of the human brain to induce states of trance, prayer, and healing.
Scientists have also studied the neurological effects of Gregorian chant. Due to its slow tempo and flowing melodies, Gregorian chant is highly effective at inducing brainwave frequencies associated with meditation. Much of the new work connecting music and healing cites Gregorian chant for its therapeutic value because by entraining the brain to enter calmer states and reduce anxiety and stress, it creates the conditions necessary for healing. It also has clinical applications. In her work on music therapy, Dr. Pat Cook shows how sonic healing is now being used and being applied to many areas of medicine, including oncology, psychiatry, and physical therapy. Smote chanting is a uniquely Cambodian form of Buddhist chanting with slow and graceful melodies. I quickly learned that smote has been little studied outside of Cambodia. In the hundreds of articles and books written about classical Cambodian culture, only a handful make mention of smote. No scholars in Cambodia or abroad have yet addressed the claims for its healing efficacy. I remember one afternoon in Cambodia, I rode out on a motorbike to visit Gao Ran, a smote teacher who has recorded several albums of her chanting. I asked her about the importance of her art form. This chanting is very important. Why do I say that it's important? Because it allows us to contemplate our own bodily existence. By listening to these chants, we calm ourselves, our feelings, our desires, our cravings, our greed, and our anger. Her answer surprised me. I realized that smote didn't just have a soothing sound. It is actually intended to calm negative emotions and bring people to a state of focus and concentration. I asked Gabe what happens when the sick focus on music in many of the healing rituals around the world. If you close your eyes and you sit still, engulf yourself in highly complex and interesting sound, it's not sort of a wild idea that you could start to separate from the world. In smote rituals, the sick person closes her eyes and focuses on the slow, rhythmic chanting. Her brain waves, often sped up by anxiety, are gradually slowed down to match the powerfully meditative rhythm of the smote. Thus, the musical aspects of smote bring the listeners to a state of meditative concentration, similar to the effects of Gregorian chant. In my study of smote literature, I found that the lyrics of smote chants are actually far from calming. These texts vividly describe the decay and death of our bodies. I'll translate an excerpt as an example. There is no part of our bodies that is permanent. Teeth fall out, hair turns white, all without exception. What I didn't expect was that the theme of decay and death was actually part of the healing process, and part of the reason why the therapeutic value of smote had been tapped into for hundreds of years in Cambodia. If you have a lot of psychological stress, it can manifest in all sorts of physical ways in terms of you know, from anything like a bad headaches to stomach aches to rashes and uh, be ameliorated by, by sort of facing some of the psychological issues that you've been avoiding. Unlike Gregorian chant, smote does not simply calm its listeners. Our impending deaths do indeed scare us, and the resulting anxiety can surface as psychosomatic illness. It's sort of like you're allowing yourself to enter a state where profound insight can occur. Like, you, you can't just do that. I mean, most of the time when you're walking around, you're not in a, a, a state of focus or, a, I mean, anything like the state of reflection or concentration that you need to be to have any kind of insight about yourself and your relationship to the world, but especially your relationship to things like death and fear and anger and jealousy and envy and guilt and the kinds of things that really screw you up. So I began to understand that smote rituals calm people to the point where they can contemplate the inner knots, like fear of death, that are the real source of their suffering. 
anxiety, and even physical symptoms. Gautran describes these rituals. When the elders have an illness that seems to come out of old age, they ask to listen to a chant that can give strength and energy to their consciousness. These chants are about our own body, from the small intestine to the large intestine, from the eyes to the tongue to the teeth, and flesh, arms, legs, bones, everything. Or another chant is fine too, just as long as it gives them vigor, concentrates their minds, and gives them energy. It occurred to me that smote filled a gap in most conventional medicine. It grants a sick person the energy and strength to contemplate what scares them most. By facing up to their anxieties and fears with focus and calm, they open the door for healing to occur. This process is made possible by the principle of sonic entrainment and the Buddhist philosophy that permeates Cambodian culture. Smote, then, offers a technology for healing and generating ease at the end of life. I thought back to the time when I first went to Gabe's lecture. Now, his out-of-body experiences on the drums and his scientific research don't seem all that different from the principles I was exploring in Smote. I suppose that music really could lead to extraordinary states of consciousness and even sometimes healing. I remembered a story that my Smote teacher, Prumut, told me many times. During the years after the war, it was as if there were no people who couldn't be healed. I would chant for them, and they would live another three or four years. Even people that had no hope for recovery, even people whose children had gathered the firewood for their cremation. By listening to the chants, they would be transformed by them and come back to life. For example, one old grandmother to the west of the temple, she had me chant for her three times. Each time she would live another three or four years. When her illness began, her children prepared her for cremation. But after listening to the chanting, she was healed. It wasn't until ten years later she finally left this world. I am moved every time my teacher tells me this story. But what really gets me is not the efficacy of smote, but the fact that smote today is disappearing. Cambodia was taken over by the radical Khmer Rouge in 1975, an extreme communist group who aimed to destroy Cambodia's history and culture and transform the country into an agrarian utopia. Ultimately, Almost all vestiges of Cambodian culture were destroyed, along with nearly two million people by 1979. Since then, Cambodia has slowly been rebuilding itself, but traditional culture, while highly valued by many Cambodians, receives almost no support from the government. Few teachers of Smolt survived the Khmer Rouge Holocaust, and even fewer still teach today. A tradition of healing is now being lost. I interviewed Jan Borin, professor of music and dean at the Royal University of Fine Arts in Cambodia. As far as I know, there aren't many teachers left in this tradition. As for teachers of smoke who know as much as myself, perhaps there are only two or three other people. My teacher agrees. For the future, I'm filled with sadness and fear, because I'm afraid that smoke chanting will not last much longer. I began to wonder if the disappearance of musical traditions was a common issue. I was really surprised, though, to find it in my own backyard. I met with Sherwood Chen, Associate Director of the Alliance for California Traditional Arts, and asked him if there was a similar endangerment of musical traditions here in California. I mean, when you talk about endangered, I it's really taking a look at a lot of the indigenous um, cultures that are here in California. The Alliance for California Traditional Arts works to support traditional artists. The organization is now undertaking a study to assess the therapeutic value of these traditions. We are working with UC Davis to 
try to make a link between folk and traditional arts and artists and wellness. So taking a look at that from a mental health and physical health perspective. Back in Cambodia, organizations like Cambodian Living Arts, a project of world education, are working to support master artists like Brum Ut and their students so that these traditions may have a chance to blossom once more. I'm also glad that non-governmental organizations are giving youth a chance to study easily, something I never had in my day. Still, I'm afraid that after I die, what will happen to our tradition? Cambodia is by no means unique in the richness of its healing traditions. Nor, however, is it the only culture in which these traditions are dying. Only recently has science begun to understand how these healing traditions work, and the efforts to study, preserve, and support them echo the efforts to catalog and preserve the vast biodiversity in the Amazonian rainforest. I recall one rainy morning in Cambodia. As I am finishing my last interview with Yamburin and preparing to leave for home, after nearly 13 months abroad, he says to me, Poetry is peace. Those who know poetry are people of peace, free from anger and ill will. Those who chant poetry are not ill-willed, but instead have mastered their hearts and think deeply. It is not as if those who chant don't have ill will, but rather than they have little and can quickly calm and disperse their anger. I hope that you, my younger brother, will help to spread this knowledge, continue your research, and do whatever you can so that this chanting is not only of value to Cambodians, but to all members of the human race. There is no easy way to apply technologies developed in one culture to another. But neither should we be afraid to seriously study and support what may prove to be one of our greatest resources as humans in a world beset by illness and anxiety. Indeed, we too would do well to simply open our ears. Trent Walker is a sophomore at Stanford. The final story of our show, People Find the Drum Who Need to Find the Drum. Last quarter, the Institute for Diversity in the Arts sponsored John Carlos Perea as a visiting artist. He came to Stanford for 10 weeks to teach a group of students the art of Native American powwow music. His students got to learn about how the music has historically bonded the Native American community and also use it to create a new community of their own. My name is John Carlos Perea. Today is March 6, 2008. That song is an intertribal social dance song that was taught to me by uh, my grandfather, my teacher, Dr. Barney Honer. Um, the name of that song, I don't remember, and I don't remember if he ever told it to me. Uh, intertribal songs are a very fluid part of um, contemporary Powell music. The music that I do is very much influenced by uh, Northern Plains powwow, Northern Plains powwow music and dance, and also uh, cedar flute, American Indian cedar flute music. 
I started playing music way back in third or fourth grade, taking piano lessons, and then moved up to guitar, uh, learning folk tunes, This Land Is Your Land, everything like that. Um, at the same time that I was doing that, my parents were taking me to powwows in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I was hearing, quote, Western music, and at the same time, I was being taken to Powell's and getting the other side, you know, the other side of the coin, as it were. Uh, and that's been a constant throughout my life. Um, it's never been one music over the uh, over the other. It's always my, I'm I'm very fortunate that my parents encouraged uh, that kind of listening diversity in me at a young age. <laughs> Well, one of the things that Barney always said was that people find the drum who need to find the drum. And he, he took each class for, for what it was and, and, more importantly, for what it could be if people were able to, to, to come together and dialogue with each other. And it's with that same idea in mind that I conduct my classes today. My, my model for doing what I do is based on my time with him. The songs that I teach are, are his songs, you know. He, he passed those songs on to me before he, he left us. And it's my responsibility, given what I learned, to continue that in a good way. That was what I feel I was tasked to do by him. And so, therefore, that's what I aspire for in, in, in the classes, be they San Francisco State, Berkeley, or the past 10 weeks here at Stanford. Just a bit. <laughs> We bit different. We bit different. Probably. My name is Jidenna Mobison, and Jidenna means embracing the father in Igbo, a language of southeastern Nigeria. I wanted to to understand how powwow had evolved. Um, where did it start? How did it start? And 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 how did it end up at Stanford? And um, you know, what aspects of it could we call traditional, what could we call contemporary, and where do those two blur? Maybe we trade off? We trade off? Dirk, can I? Um, my name's Michaela Rakes, and I'm a sophomore here at Stanford. I spend time living on a reservation in South Dakota, and um, powwow is in the spring, uh, starts in the spring through the summertime, and it's Absolutely. all over the country with all different types of tribes and people <laughs> and I really missed that too and I thought it would be great to have that in the winter time and just a great experience to actually sit down with a real powwow singer and learn about um, the actual intricate parts of powwow that I couldn't have figured out just by sitting and watching and also learning more about the singing specifically. So my name is Luke Taylor. I'm a sophomore. I come from Boston, Massachusetts. My mom is from Australia. My dad's from New York. So the first half of the quarter was spent really educating ourselves again around this historical context that informs so much of the music. Um, there are a few significant prominent Native American writers um, who wrote around not just um, Native American histories, but the, the social context out of which powwow music came. Um, how it was held, especially in the late 1800s when it was illegal for a really long time, um, and the great risks that a number of communities took in order to continue stewarding those traditions. start out by um, setting up a, a timeline in terms of how, okay, so we're here now, but how did we get here? You know, what are the events? And for that, I go back to a lot of ethnomusicological texts that have influenced me as a grad student. 
I also bring in sources from American Indian or Native American studies to sort of bolster those ethnomusicological texts. I can't teach anybody how to sing unless they know why it's important. Otherwise, they're just banging on a drum. And, and Barney would never have that, and I wouldn't have that either. So we start with the historical context. Uh, and then from there, we go to the dance styles. I can't teach you how to sing without a historical context. I also can't teach you how to sing unless you know what, I, unless you know whom you're singing for. An average day is we'll come in, we'll start at 3.15. Um, I'll take out the drum and I'll set it next to a circle of chairs. We'll set up a circle of chairs, lay some blankets down. Uh, John Carlos and I will go over some um, sort of housekeeping issues or uh, things that the group needs to know for events. So we'll talk a little bit as a group. Um, we'll, he'll talk about progress. He'll talk about what he'd like to see more of us from. Um, and then we'll bring out the drum and we'll set the drum in the circle and we'll all sit around in a circle. Um, and then we'll run through different pieces. I think everybody came nervously, quite nervously. Everybody was, uh, you know, afraid to sing at first. I think the predominant reason for that was that there was a respect for the people of this land, um, whose land was taken forcibly, uh, forcefully. And no one wanted to just chant or make all these sounds that sound Indian. No one wanted to sound Indian. We wanted to find our own voices, but within uh, this, I don't want to call it a genre, but a style of singing. The mood of the class really changed once the drum came into the, into the class, whereas um, we were all around the drum, we are all beating to the same pulse, the same rhythm, the same sound is sort of flowing through us, vibrating through us around this circle. And it, beyond the physical feeling, it really started to bring us together, we started to joke around and kind of make fun of each other in very friendly ways, teasing each other. Um, and it got to be so subtle that just one little word or one little look of the eye could refer to a joke that was made around the drum. I'm not leaving yet. John Carlos is big on teaching through stories and uh, recounting the teachings of, of his teacher, um, Barney, and how, how he was influenced by Barney. More than any other academic experience that I've had, there's such a sense of solidarity within the group and community. I think that intimacy um, has to do with the teaching style of John Carlos, where he teases you if you do well. Him just starting by that, just joking around with people, lighten the mood a lot. Him allowing us to joke about Native American culture, stereotypes, or our own cultures, him allowing that there and not being so politically correct in that circle, that made us all feel like we were at home. We feel safe sitting in that space and talking about history and we so feel, um, I feel safe figuring out, you know, how to sing when I really didn't sing before. respectful academic context where native and non-native views can be discussed with parity. My hope is to create a space where these greater dialogues can eventually take place. Right now we keep it on the social level. We keep it on a level where we can sit, talk, have coffee, eat food, start from there. 
hopefully later on, as we look to the long term, we can get into these other issues and, and come to a, a good resolution. We never talk about the spirit in academia unless we're talking about some anthropological perspective on shamanism. Um, and I think there was definitely uh, a spiritual energy in the class that was very, very obvious. Um, and I know John Carlos, for a specific reason, wanted to shy away from speaking about the sacred nature of, uh, of the particular music we were singing. Um, but when you start singing about the deceased, um, you can't really avoid that. My favorite song that we're singing now is a song called Bumblebee. I think the, uh, the Bumblebee song, which is a song that John Carlos made for a little girl named Bumblebee. I think my favorite piece, uh, the one that moved me the most, was the honor song, the Bumblebee song that John Carlos taught us. He wrote the song, he made the song, as is said in Powwow Musicianship after a student of his uh, passed away and the student wasn't uh, our age, wasn't a college student, but was uh, this four-year-old girl named Bumblebee who would come to some of his workshops when he was teaching in San Francisco State. And she was so happy, so vibrant that whenever you came, she came in, no matter how uh, blue you were that day, you would just feel bright, and you know those people. She was one of them. And this girl died of what was described as an asthma attack, um, but she was living in some squalid conditions or like a, a crack house or something, something just... Um, where, you know, asthma and complications is a little more complicated than that. And so he, he wrote this song in, in grieving uh, for Bumblebee. We as a group decided to prepare for our public presentation, and in that, um, to sing a song for a student who attended Stanford last year and passed away. And he was a really good friend of mine. And he's definitely a big reason why I took this class. If he were here, he would have loved this class. We will in indeed be performing at the memorial service um, on this coming Friday and then at the vigil this coming Saturday for the student um, that was uh, the student Mo, who passed on a year ago. We had some trouble near the end of the class. We were asking our teacher, so when can we play these songs? When do we play these songs? Will we play these songs again after this class is over? What we've decided is that when we're called to play for, for the community, we will answer that call and, and we will prepare and, and come. There's definitely an important line to be drawn between uh, when you can and when you can't play. And it's hard to know as, as a musician who's new to this kind of music um, and new to many of the histories that are behind this kind of music, it's hard to know what right I have to play the music. But I think being under the tutelage of John Carlos Perea uh, gives me that right and coming to the performances prepared and playing the music with with the intent that the music is for the people. I think with these things in mind, I'm also given the right to play this music.
I have seen students who are incredibly uh, introverted suddenly become uh, Powell committee members and start volunteering for nonprofit organizations and maintain involvement. I have seen students who perhaps were uncomfortable in accepting and working with whatever their own cultural background was, take lessons that they'd learned from me, apply them to their own culture, and then go back and address their own issues. Um, I think that's probably some of the most powerful and important work. I think many of us will have a desire to keep singing like this. The, the question of invitation, of um, integrity for the music and the tradition is a continuing one because this music cannot and probably should not be sung just anywhere and just any way. I enjoy being at the drum and I love singing and I love singing with these people in particular. I feel like I have a really cool bond with them. Uh, but if John Carlos isn't here, I don't know. It is in no way a light thing to embark upon the road of being a singer because it is first and foremost a responsibility. It is first and foremost a responsibility. Um, it's not a performance ensemble in the sense that you think of in a music department. It's, this is not that. This is not that world. We talk a lot about our right to sit and do this. What is our right? Is it even okay for us to sit there um, because we are not native, all of us, um, because, you know, we <laughs> don't live on a reservation, things like that. People have these notions that, you know, women are, it's still a controversial issue for women to sit at the drum. And he lets us all sit there and, and ensures that, you know, we be comfortable sitting there. And in taking this class and having a desire to learn the history and the culture behind it, we all feel that what we're doing is right and is okay. So much of the time these traditions are looked at as static. And in being static, that's when things die, you know? I, I, I hear all the time, oh, I'm lo we're losing this tradition, we're losing that tradition, we're losing this, we're losing that. But then when somebody gets up and tries to do something innovative to help develop a new context, those people are told, no, no, you can't do that, it's not traditional. So on one hand, we're not traditional, but on the other hand, we're losing everything, so what's left? Well, it's all going to die, right? I'm, I'm not willing to accept that, right? For me, as long as it's done with respect, right? As long, as long as these different moves are done with respect, it can only be good. I was taught that the, the, the reason that, 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 that we sing high is that that is like the baby's cry, okay? And that in doing that, as a singer, what you're trying to do is you're trying to put aside the drama, put aside the politics, let that part of yourself go, right? in recognition of the fact that people died in order to do what you're doing, right? If the right people show up and they can let go of themselves enough to understand that the music is bigger than any of us, then that's where I believe you begin to build. Um, Powell music is not an art for art's sake, you know? It's, it's an art for oral history, both, you know, oral, O-R-A-L, and oral, A-U-R-A-L, right? I mean, it's sound and it's, and, it's, and it's spoken word. And if you can come to terms with that as a, as, a, as a singer, then you have the ability to actually get somewhere with it.
Luke Taylor, Michaela Rakes, Jadena Mobison, and Ben Burdick are undergraduates at Stanford. Giancarlos Perea is currently working on his PhD in ethnomusicology at Berkeley. Today's program was produced by Bonnie Swift, Jonah Willingans, and myself, Hannah Krakauer. It was engineered by Dan Hirsch. Thanks to Trent Walker and Angela Castellanos for their stories. Thanks also to Rachel Hamburg for her production assistance. Special thanks to my sister, Chloe Krakauer, for her beautiful cello recordings, one of which you're enjoying right now. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford Continuing Studies, Stanford's Oral Communication Program, and the Hume Writing Center. For his ongoing help, a special thanks to Bob Smith in the Wallenberg Recording Studio. KZSU would like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West for their continuing underwriting support. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. Tune in next time for Coming to You Live, stories about live performance and how it impacts the performances and the people who give them. For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Hannah Krakauer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>